The following audio is from Central Christian Church, located in Portales, New Mexico. To connect with Central, go to centralwired.org.
Good morning. I was reminded of a verse not too long ago, and that verse is in Romans chapter 8, and it starts in verse 18, and we're going to read from 18 through verse 20, and it says, I am convinced that any suffering that we endure is less than nothing compared to the magnitude of glory that is about to be unveiled within us. The entire universe is standing on tiptoe, yearning to see the unveiling of God's glorious sons and daughters. For against its will, the universe itself has had to endure the empty futility resulting from the consequences of human sin. Now, to go along with especially that first part, I am convinced that any suffering we endure is less than nothing compared to the magnitude of the glory that is about to be unveiled within us. I read a quote not too long ago that said, Sometimes God delivers us from the fiery furnace, and other times he just makes us fireproof and lets the fire rage on. Now, that doesn't make it any easier, but it gives us promise. You know, have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about those situations, those consequences, or those those circumstances? You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced the fiery furnace. And God had, had it well within his power to extinguish that flame. But he chose not to. He chose to allow the fire to rage on. But the promise says he made those three boys fireproof. Is he doing that with you right now? Are you in a situation that, you know, you have prayed for, prayed against, prayed for power, prayed for deliverance, yet he feel, you feel like he's not delivering you, he's not getting you out of that situation. Maybe you are supposed to be where you're at because he's making you fireproof. He is preparing you for something great. What if it's in his plan to allow you to go through whatever you're going through to show you that with him and through him, you are stronger than you ever imagined you could be. You know, last weekend, our Portales Rams played and lost in the state championship football game. In my opinion, our team was extremely blessed. You know, we were prayed over weekly, daily. We were a very blessed football team. We put God first. We had a leadership that made it well known to our team and to the teams that we played that God was number one. And he was of utmost importance to our team, to our coaches, and to and to our games. 
You know, we prayed numerous times over the course of this last season. Please bless us with a championship. Please let us be champions. Well, with my, in my humble opinion, he made us champions. But he didn't make, he didn't give us a, a state championship. He didn't give us that championship. Now, did he not answer our prayers? Or did he answer our prayers in a way that he would get the most glory? I was asked the other day, why would God bless a team that doesn't visibly visibly bless him, that doesn't glorify him, that doesn't interact with each other or interact with the teams that they play in a way that blesses God? Why would he bless them? Why would he give them that championship when our team always puts God first? And here's my thought. That thought always brought me back to a very special verse in the life of my father. Romans 8, 28 is what his life verse was, but we're going to take it a step back. We're going to start in verse 27. Romans 8, 27 through 28 says, God, the searcher of the heart, knows our longings. Yet he also understands the desires of the Spirit, because the Holy Spirit passionately pleads before God for us. Passionately pleads before God for us. We are his holy ones in perfect harmony with God's plan and our destiny. So we can be convinced that every detail of our lives is continually woven together for good. For we are his lovers who have been called to fulfill his designed purpose. So in this instance, and in our daily lives, we have to understand that our loving father knows exactly what we desire. And he knows exactly what we long for. But those verses tell us that our Heavenly Father is going to orchestrate all things for his glory, for his good. So back to that question that I asked you, or that I was asked. Here's how I answered this. I'm not sure the exact reasoning, but I do know this. My God is going to be glorified, and in this instance, He was going to get the most glory from our team if we were not successful. He was going to be given more glory with us coming in second and not winning. One, I believe, is because he wanted to see just how faithful we are and how faithful we were. But more than that, 
like I told you, we were very visible in how we blessed God on our team. And he knew that people needed to watch how we reacted. People needed to see that team that prays after every game, that team that prays with the other teams at the end of the game. How are they going to react? Are they going to still glorify me? Are they still going to believe that I am their true king? That's how he gets his glory. And unfortunately, we had to be second place in that game last week in order for that vision to come to true. Remember, he orchestrates everything for his purpose. And he tells us that in him, all things are good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the promise that everything that we endure, everything that we go through, we know is woven together and orchestrated by you. Heavenly Father, you deliver us whenever you know that we need to be delivered. You deliver us from the furnace when we need to be delivered, or you just make us fireproof and let us rage on. Heavenly Father, take us throughout this week and let us be a light to your kingdom. Let us be an example to your people that you are going to get the glory in no matter what we do. It's in your son's name we pray.
Welcome to December, the month of some of the coolest holidays we have ever known. Did you know that Tuesday, uh, December the 5th, is National Ninja Day? You probably won't see them uh, because they're ninjas, all right? Uh, that means Friday is the, December the 8th is National Brownie Day. Now, I love that idea. The only problem is December the 13th is National Ice Cream Day. Come on, America. Let's get those two together, all right? Let's get that working. But I think it salvages itself. December the 16th, and I'm not even making this up, is National Chocolate-Covered Anything Day. God bless America. All right, all right there. We, can, we, we win it all. December the 18th is American Wear a Plunger on Your Head Day. <laughs> Coincidentally, many of our office parties are often held on that day. I don't know if that should, if those pair together or what. Now, of course, we love December the 25th, all right? Did you know that December 26th is a thing called Boxing Day? Boxing Day. I think that's very appropriate. You've held it together through the whole month and all the bills and Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. But the day after Christmas, somebody's going down. All right. I got to level somebody. I heard somebody say one time, every family tree has some squirrels in it. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking right now, you're like, no, mine's pretty normal. Well, then maybe you should look in the mirror. Maybe it's you. You're the problem. You're the antihero. You see, the family tree of Jesus is also full of some odd characters. You'd think the Bible writers would want some of that out. But the story of Jesus turns everything upside down. Welcome to Upside Down Christmas. We're not trying to make a political statement here. We're not trying to cause any ruckus. Just wanted to do something different. We're, we want to visibly see that the story of Jesus turns everything upside down. If you're joining us online or on the radio, welcome to Central Christian Church. We're going to be in the first t- couple of three chapters of the book of Matthew. If you want to start there, we're going to park there for the next three weeks Uh, three or four weeks in these first three or four chapters. And if you'll stick with me, you'll figure out how this turns everything upside down. It turns things that were dark into light, foolishness into wisdom. It turns bad news into good news. And today we're going to start it out with turning what was out, bringing it in. Suppose you want to learn about this Jesus character. You've heard people talk about it. You went to church when you were a kid, but you've stumbled back in here. The the first time you come to church, somebody hands you one of those Gideon New Testaments. Remember those when we got when we were kids, you know, little pocket ones? And you open it up, and the very first page says the book of Matthew. And the very first line says, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah a descendant of David and of Abraham. Then for about 42 straight lines, you're going to see a bunch of names that you can't pronounce, followed by the father of, the father of, the father of, the father of. And you're sitting here thinking, that's kind of a boring start. Why why not something with fireworks? 
It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I mean, something that would catch your interest. Why, why such a dull introduction for such a great guy? Well, here's why. It wasn't boring to the original readers. We need to be reminded frequently that this Bible is not written to us. It's written for us. It's not written about us. It's written for us. But it was written to people 2,000 years ago. And we get a lot from it. But a Jewish reader would see this. And Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And the, to a Jewish audience, nothing is more interesting and more important than genealogy. That's why I love this quote. If you don't know you're a leaf, uh, if you don't follow your history, you, you're a leaf that doesn't know it's part of a tree. You see, a genealogy was used to establish all kinds of legal precedents. Who could inherit property? Who could uh, carry on the family name? Even sacred assignments. There was a time when they were coming back from Babylonian exile in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. Ezra is rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Where some people came back to Ezra and they said, hey, we want to be priests. He said, well, show me where's your family records. Well, we lost them in the exile. Well, then you can't be priests because we can't trace your family line. I think one of the easiest ways to do this is, have you ever been overseas? How many of you have ever been overseas and you require your passport? And they always talk to you about, make sure you keep up with that, okay? Because if you lose that, you've got to go to the, U- the U.S. Embassy and say, hi, I'm from New Mexico. And they say, no, this is the American Embassy. We don't have Mexico here, all right? No, 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 New Mexico. It's the big square one right next to, right, right between Arizona and Texas. We're real, all right? You know, we have to explain to them. I know the national anthem and I can quote the presidents. They want to know, do you belong here before they'll give you a temporary passport? You see, no true Messiah would just walk up and say, okay, here I am. I'm the Messiah. The very first thing they're going to want to do is, let me see your records. Let me see your family history. I want to know where you're from. But you see, to you and I, these names can seem, well, kind of tedious. I would imagine it's probably pretty hard to get a book published, don't you think, if you're a writer, especially if you're unknown. In 1975, a guy named Chuck Ross was a wannabe writer, but his daytime job was he was a cable TV salesman. And he wanted to write the great American novel, but he believed nobody would listen to him because nobody had ever heard of him. So he took, and to test the system, he took and retyped 21 pages of a book called Uh, Steps by Jerry Kaczynski. In 1969, this book won the National Book Award. It was very well known. It was very well respected. He took the first 21 pages and retyped them. He typed them, okay? He didn't word process, clickety-click-click-click, zing, clickety-click, you know, I mean, he had to do it old school, right? Typed it up and submitted it to four publishers. All four publishers rejected the manuscript, So two years later, he took it a little bit farther. He took the entire novel, Steps. 
He typed every bit of it verbatim, not to plagiarize, but to prove a point. And he put it under a pen name, Eric Demos, not his original, in case somebody would recognize his name. And he submitted it all over to several more publishers, including the original publisher, Random House. And they were all, without fail, rejected. In fact, Random House just sent him a, a blanket letter. One interesting came back and said, this reminds me of a novel called Steps by Jerry Kaczynski, but he develops better characters than you do. Maybe you should go read that one. And he had to, verbatim had just written the whole book right there. And his point was this. After 14 publishers and 13 literary agents who had already read that book, didn't recognize they had already been published and had won an important award. Now, the reason I share that is I I like being reminded, but sometimes we face the Bible that way. Sometimes we face Christmas this way. Oh, Don, I know this story. We've watched Charlie Brown. We know the whole story, right? Uh, we, We got it figured out. You don't need to tell us this story. And especially genealogies. We could care less. It's very easy to slip into, been there, done that. I, I, don't need to, I don't need to pay attention to this. I am begging you for the next four weeks, let Jesus turn your Christmas completely upside down. You see, the story of Jesus did not start with once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away. Matthew is saying this is Real. These are historical people. You can check this out for yourself. How many of you have ever heard of Bill Maher? He was a, he's a reporter, a guy, a show on HBO called Real Time. He's a stated atheist. He's pretty much against everybody and everything. But in 2014, his ratings were slipping, so he had a bunch of Christians on there. And he famously made the quote, Christianity is a fairy tale. And he spent the time blasting Christians and saying, and, and truthfully, he wasn't completely wrong. He said, Christians, Christians are a bunch of judgmental people. Well, we can be judgmental people. And they can be uh, staunch and not willing to compromise. Yeah, all of the things that we know. But then he said, Christianity is a fairy tale. There was a believer that was one of the panelists on the show, and he said, wait a minute, Bill. Read Matthew chapter 1. That is not a fairy tale. The family of Jesus is made up of real, authenticated people from history. You see, this is not a fable. Jesus has an established family record. To you and I, this may not mean very much. But but to a Jewish believer, that base is absolutely important. Remember when Queen Elizabeth died and... We were wondering, is Prince Charles going to be King Charles? And then, and then they start talking about all the earls and the dukes who's the 23rd in line to the king. I don't know how y'all did, but did most of America went, we don't care. Uh, 23rd in line? Who knows? We, we don't really follow any of that. That's not our style, right? But you see, to a Jewish reader, when they see all of these names, he's including names of patriarchs. Monarchy from the exile. He's making a case for Messiah. But he's not just giving a genealogy. He's given a theology that God himself came in the flesh. Deity involved and poured into humanity. 
You see, most living religions have tenets that are not really required that the leader be alive. Uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, everything in those kind of world religions is based on you. So what have you done? Are you loyal to that leader? Are you, have you done all the steps? Have you made your best effort, your good deeds? The most fundamental part of Christianity is Jesus is real. He's a real man from real towns, Nazareth, uh, Bethlehem, Capernaum. He's been Jericho. All of these places are real places. He had real flesh. He had a real mom. Look in verse 16. Watch what Matthew does in verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph. Joseph was the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Did you catch how it twisted there? Glance back at all the others. The father of the father of the father of. And then in verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Matthew is stating very clearly that Joseph is the legal father of Jesus, but not the biological one. Not the biological father. He adopted Jesus. He gave him paternal care. We know that because he was trained as a carpenter, as Joseph was. He legally became the son of Joseph, who was in the line of David. So it was real. There is a line. He, he could really be Messiah. Christmas makes some wild claims that eternal God, the eternal God was once held as an embryo in the virgin womb of a teenage Jewish girl. The one who spoke the universe into being had to learn how to speak. The one that holds the cosmos together was once so frail and vulnerable that he had to be held and protected. That's why we ask a very simple question. Every time you've ever seen somebody come up here to get baptized, and we go in that little room, we take those little steps and we go down in there, every time we ask him a question, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? It's, it's absolutely foundational. And that verse that Carolyn read, 1 John 4, he says it this way. This is how you can know God's spirit. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ came to earth as a human is from God. And every spirit who refuses to say this about Jesus is not from God. It is the spirit of the enemy of Christ, which you have heard is coming and now is already in this world. That's absolutely essential. There were people of that time, and probably still some today, that say, well, Jesus was a good guy. He was a prophet. He was a, he was a pretty good guy. But he couldn't be deity. And that's why the Gnostics, they would say, well, he wasn't really God in flesh because he wouldn't feel pain. I think we've got evidence that would, would say that's not true. He was a real person. And Matthew is saying God came in to our neighborhood to work out a plan. Jesus was not an afterthought. He was plan A all along. He was never plan B. Now look real close. Look at verse 17. And again, we're not going to try to pronounce all these names, but, but look at verse 17. It says, all those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to Messiah. Full disclosure. 
If you have any math skills at all, you can re- read that and figure out it's not exactly 14. And historians will tell us there are historical skips here. But I think he's speaking to a Jewish audience. A Jewish audience knows the number seven is perfect. Well, 14 would be double perfection. My son figured out last night that if you got 14 and 14 and 14, that's 42. And 42 is the answer to everything. Thank you for those of us that that loved Hitchhiker's Guide. Uh, okay. So you... Let me see if I can make some explanations here. Because there's a lot of skeptics that will come in and they'll say, see, it's not even accurate. It is accurate. What if, what if you came to America for the first time and they took you immediately to Mount Rushmore? Anybody been to Mount Rushmore? Big, big rock, right? Lots of, there's four faces up there. Washington, Jefferson, uh, Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt. Is that, is that the four? I, I never can. I'm not sure if I ever get. But you walk up and you see that and you go, so you've only had four presidents in 250 years? What about Zachary Taylor? What about Herbert Hoover? No, you all know that. We all know. We common sense would say, no, that's not all, but that's a representation, right? That's a representation of our history. That's what he's saying is what Matthew is saying from the patriarchs to the judges, from the prophets to the kings, from bondage in Egypt to bondage in Babylon, God never lost control. God was always in control. He never surrendered authority. It is very uh, easy to follow. Just what Jeremy was saying today. What God works out according to God's plan. May not be our plan, but it was according to God's plan. He never surrendered authority. And Jesus came in to bring a kingdom, uh, to bring a kingdom that leaves no one out. A lot of these Jews were looking for a Messiah to come in and kick out them Romans and kick out them Gentiles. And all these people that are not doing it right and are unworthy, get rid of all of them. And Matthew, Matthew turns upside down by listing the family tree of Jesus. Now, wouldn't you expect the pedigree of a Messiah to be perfect? I mean, kings did. Herod, we, we see Herod in scripture. Herod is a title. And there was a Herod that was after biblical times. He wanted to be king of the Jews. He wanted to be claimed king of the Jews. And so they, uh, I said, well, make me king of the Jews too. And they said, well, you can't do that. You're from this country called Edom. You were an Edomite. So he went to his historians and said, fix it. And go in and they erased parts of his history, just made it so he could be king of the, that's what kings did. A king would just make it right, you see. But Matthew includes all the squirrels in the family tree. Now, there's some heroes. Look in there. You're going to see Abraham, Isaac. You're going to see David. You're going to see Ruth. Then you're going to see some ordinary names, people we don't know anything about. Uh, Hezron, Ram, Nashon, Akim. Don't have a clue who these people are. But then you're going to see some bad squirrels. A guy named Manasseh. He was a king that worshipped idols. He offered his own son as a sacrifice to the god Moloch. Child sacrifice. Abijah was one of the sons of Solomon. Horrible guy. Took every sin he could possibly find. But what Matthew does that is absolutely monumental is he includes women. You see, genealogies were patriarchal. 
only the men really mattered. And it always fascinates me. It always makes me chuckle when I hear popular media say, well, the Christianity just oppresses women. God, it's all, they're all second. That could be farther from the truth. No leader in the history of the planet has done more for women than Jesus. You see, at the time when this was written, women were second-class citizens. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's how it was, okay? They were, they were treated as property. And you couldn't own anything. You couldn't uh, inherit anything. But Matthew includes the women. So he's going to bring the heroes, right? Well, there are a few, but... Matthew goes to that closet door and opens it up and drags out all of the ugliest skeletons he can find. And he throws them out there so we can all see. Look in verse 3. It says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, if you're a biblical scholar, you're going to understand Tamar is not a great story. Tamar was the daughter of a guy named, a daughter-in-law of a guy named Judah. Her husband died. She went to Judah to try to get another uh, husband because they didn't have any heirs. He didn't have any more sons. He wouldn't give him any more sons. So what she did is she dressed up like a prostitute, got him drunk, and seduced her own father-in-law to get pregnant. It's in Genesis chapter 38. It's a horrible story. Scandal everywhere. We go a couple of verses farther. In verse 5, you're going to find the name Rahab. Now, we know that story fairly well. She didn't dress up like a prostitute. She was one. Rahab is mentioned eight times in Scripture. Six times it is mentioned with the word prostitute or harlot. I went back this week and looked in the Greek and in the Hebrew. You know what that word means? It means prostitute. Means exactly what we think it is. There is no way to pretty that up, okay? It is exactly what it was. But this is a woman that listened to the voice of God. And you go on a little further in, in verse 5, you're going to see Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And, and Ruth, oh, Don, Ruth is a good story. That's a happy story. Yeah, it is. It's got a happy ending and hallmark ending, but... But to an Israelite, they know one thing about Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite from the country of Moab. Moab and Ammon. Uh, You're going to hear, if you spend any time in the Old Testament, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Those are fairly recognizable names. And they're always fighting with Israel. They're always picking on Israel. Moab and Ammon came from incestuous relationships with Lot and his daughters. It's awful. It's ugly. All of these women, these are outsiders. These are messy stories. But Matthew Matthew reminds us that our Messiah came from a mess. He he didn't come just to save people. He, He didn't come just to save for sinners. He came from sinners. He came to save people like his own family, like you and me. People that have made mistakes, but not to kick them out. To draw them in, to welcome them in. Their mess, our mess, becomes part of the message. So that they can see his glory in us. Most of you know the story, but in 1939, Montgomery Ward's big store in Chicago asked one of their ad executives to come up with a little gift 
to give the little kids that came and sat on Santa's lap. They wanted to give him a candy cane and maybe a, a poem or a story or something. So he went home and he wrote this little poem that turned into a book. And 10 years later, the brother of that ad executive said, you know what, I'm going to turn this thing into a song. And he set it to music and he started passing it around. Nobody wanted to record it. A dumb Christmas song until a big cowboy from California named Gene Autry said, shoot, I'll record that. And it became one of the most beloved Christmas carols of all time, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It was actually the greatest selling song until White Christmas came along and knocked it off. But it was, it's fun. It's peppy. We all know the words. We all know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer. And Thank you. I just wanted to see if you're awake. Okay. You, you all know the story, right? And maybe it's because it's lilting and it's fun and it's easy. But I wonder if you really notice the story. You see, Rudolph... It's the story of grace. Rudolph was a reject. They wouldn't let him play with all the other reindeer games. He was rejected. Why? Because he had a flaw. He had a, he had a problem. He had a, a, a mess. He had a blemish that made him an outsider, a different. You're not good enough to play with all the others. But Santa comes along and he takes the flaw and ties it to a bigger mission. Hey, Rudolph, you're going to go down in history. It's the story of grace. What Matthew is saying in this, the father of the father of the father of, it gets tedious to us, but what he's saying is, grace is real because Jesus is real. He is the real Messiah. He has a history. It is verified. You can take this to the bank. This is not just one season we have every year where we decorate up and we suddenly get nice to everybody. No. This is a change of heart. A completely upside down world. Maybe maybe the greatest Christmas verse in the entire Bible is one you know. For God so loved the world that He gave His only so that Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have. And maybe the greatest word in that whole, that whole verse is that word, whoever. You know who whoever is? That's you and me. You and me, we're whoever. We are all citizens of Whoville. I'm making everybody, I turned the tree upside down, I'm quoting Rudolph, I've got Dr. Seuss in here, man, I, I've been sitting on that Dr. Seuss quote for weeks trying to say that. We're all whoever. We are, we are grace. You see, the birth of Jesus means all that are outsiders, like you and me, are invited in. Everybody that has a past is invited in. Jesus had to spend every day of his life with the, the comments and the snide remarks. Yeah, but your mom got pregnant before she got married. Do you realize that's bad in our culture today? In those days, she could have been killed. She was an unwed mother. That was a, it was a stonable offense. 
What about Joseph? Joseph didn't do anything wrong. And he had to listen to that his whole life. Yeah, but you messed up. You messed up. You've got a past. What about Matthew that wrote all this? Matthew? Matthew was a tax collector. Those were traitors to their own people. That nobody wanted them around. And I gotta believe when, when Jesus brought Matthew aboard that even Peter and, why are we bringing that guy? He's a liar. He's a cheat. He's got a past. Anybody in here got a past? Guess what? The kingdom is upside down. And Christmas should remind us of that. It should remind us that no one is excluded from God's love. No part of your story is beyond redemption. Now hear me good. That doesn't mean everybody can do whatever they want. That's not part of it either. You come and you bring your brokenness to Jesus. And you let Him heal. But everyone is welcome. And God has seen it all. There is nothing you have done that could scare Him away. He sees your history and all of this history welcomes you in. So let him change you. And may this Christmas season, may we turn everything upside down. Because that's what he did for us. Let's pray. Almighty God, turn our lives upside down. You were born for us, born to die, born as our Savior. Individually, collectively, all of us. May we be moved by that. May it change how we look. May it change how we treat people. As we go through this series, may we see that Christmas should remind us to not be like everybody else and not go along with how everything else. Let you turn us upside down. You were born for us. The Lamb who was given for our sins. May we celebrate you in this season, in our hearts, in our words, in how we treat our community. May you get glory through Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a little bit more of that song. But maybe maybe you want somebody to pray with. We have people that will meet you in our prayer room. Maybe you want to stick around and we'll just visit for a little while afterwards. But don't leave this place right side up. Let him turn you upside down. Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.